And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, and he's founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership in Coulterville, California. Andrew, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, it's an honor to be on, as it is every time, Dan. I'm grateful for your work. You are constantly putting out articles. You fly to different conferences and engage people. One of your more recent articles under Culture Change on Doc Sandlin is um, the title, False Antinomy, Jesus' Kingdom Gospel versus Paul's Salvation Gospel. That kind of caught my eye. It sounds very interesting. Uh, Maybe to get us started at a high level, what are you talking about there? Yes. Um, Well, for over a hundred years, theological liberals have tried to pit Jesus and his ministry and message against that of Paul. They'll say that Paul Hellenized the faith. Jesus came with a very simple ethical faith, you know, just do nice things to people. And then Paul turned it into a system of doctrine. That, of course, is false. But some of the root of this is the differences, alleged differences, in the Gospels that each one preached. Now, we know that Jesus Christ, after the temptation, came immediately preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. And he speaks about the gospel of the kingdom. And very closely related to that is all of his healings and uh, casting out demons, exorcisms, and so on. And uh, that essentially was a big part of the gospel that Jesus preached, Mm. because this gospel of the kingdom. In fact, uh, if you think about the bookends of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the bookends of the birth narratives at the beginning, of course, and the passion narratives, death, burial, resurrection, at the end, right there in the middle, his public ministry is mostly all about healing people and casting out devils and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. <laughs> As I said in the article, if you take this part out of the gospels, you don't have much gospel left. Mm. Now let's sort of fast forward quickly for a minute. We go to Paul's gospel preaching. Well, we could go to a number of places, but for time's sake, let's think about First Corinthians 15, the first few verses, where he summarizes the gospel is Christ's uh, death, burial, and resurrection. And of course, by implication, if we trust in the crucified and risen Lord, we will gain eternal life or be saved on the basis of his work and not our own works. Now, if you'll think about it, those two definitions of the gospel sound very different. For Paul, it's about trusting in the crucified and risen Lord. And when you, with Jesus, it is about all of these mighty works of uh, particularly casting out demons and doing all of these healings, the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, That is allegedly the difference between the two. But I like to say, and here's what the article says, these really are one gospel from uh, two different perspectives. Uh, The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of the king. In fact, we read in the New Testament, Jesus Christ gave a very important parable whose details I won't go into, but he said that he came spoiling raiding, plundering Satan's house. It's as though at the time that Jesus came, Satan had enslaved a lot of people, and we know that he had, and part of that enslavement was widespread illness and particularly widespread demon possession. And what Jesus was doing when he came was expelling this usurpatious, this false king, by plundering his kingdom, by healing those 
who are sick, by casting out demons, showing the true king has arrived. You are a false king, and I'm kicking you out. So the king, this is the gospel of the kingdom, that Jesus Christ came as Lord and king to exercise his rightful reign in the world. You say, well, okay, Andrew, what does it have to do with what Paul said? (laughs) Well, essentially, Paul tells us exactly how Jesus Christ does that, by his atoning death on the cross, by his victorious resurrection, and then, of course, by his ascension, where he rises into the heavens to take his great heavenly throne at his Father's right hand, according to Acts 2 and other texts. That's how Jesus is able to exercise his kingdom. So really, these two sort of dovetail. The problem with many Christians today, Dan, is they want to isolate Paul's gospel and sort of turn it into, well, Jesus died on the cross and rose to take me to heaven when I die, and to keep me out of hell and to help me to live a good life. Well, that's certainly true as far as it goes. But really, that is only possible, and that was achieved in order to extend this kingdom gospel of expelling Satan and all of his works in the world. Yes. Now, this also this also refers to and relates to all these sorts of modern charismatic healing ministries. I don't think people understand that Jesus Christ did not come casting out demons and uh, expelling uh, illness and so on. He didn't come to do that just to be nice to people and to be benevolent. Well, of course he did. He loves people. But the whole point is that I'm coming as a king, and I'm expelling the works of Satan in doing this. <laughs> it wasn't just a form of liberal do-goodism, and that's what people fail to understand. Therefore, Jesus Christ comes, in an earlier article I wrote, as with a regal, kingly soteriology, that is, a doctrine of salvation. He comes as the king. That shows how these two dovetail uh, with one another. Uh, very helpful and very interesting. Your article captures a, a piece of artwork, too, that's that's most interesting. It, it shows um, a couple of battle horses and a sort of a kingly-looking warrior figure on one of them. It's sharp swords are seen and a b- very bright ray of light shining down clouds, and um, where does this kind of art come from? I'm just curious. Well, this actually is a depiction, earlier depiction, I can't recall the specific one, but the event that it's depicting is, of course, Saul's conversion experience. Ah. Uh, He is traveling uh, on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, and let us recall how he was confronted. I think this is very important. He wasn't confronted with a little lowly Jesus saying, Paul, it would be really nice if you came over to my side. <laughs> uh, he, was, he was cast off his horse by the regal king. See, there's this kingship theme again, the great warrior, the warrior God coming and saving people by the power of his sovereign grace. Now, it's certainly true that Paul's conversion experience wasn't a paradigm for everybody else's. God doesn't save other people by throwing them off horses. But the, <laughs> the principle behind it is the same. He saves us by his sovereign grace. He captures us and expels Satan from our lives. That's very different from a gospel message, which is, well, Jesus Christ came uh, to help you meet your life goals or to be sort of your great cosmic therapist. That's not really the gospel of the Bible. The gospel of the Bible is the gospel of the kingly Christ. Mm, Yes. I I like your emphasis here. And Today we're talking with Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin of um, not pitting Jesus against Paul. So many times things are explained like an either-or, um, but, it, but it's really both. Uh, you, you explain that because we're kingdom people, 
we must be gospel people. And I want to capture this for my own personal life more and more. Now, you're not home today. You're out. You're going to be participating in a conference. How about the people that come to the conference? Do they find it encouraging when you cover things like this? I think so, Dan. In fact, by God's grace, uh, it seems always to happen. I uh, was joking. (laughs) Uh, Our previous conference last weekend was in Corpus Christi, Texas, at City Church, and I pointed out that people sometimes ask me, what are you in the Center for Cultural Leadership, the foundation I lead, what are you really about? And I half-jokingly respond, well, I travel around the country stirring up optimism. (laughs) And that's true. The, The message of the Bible is this message of kingdom optimism. Um, it's not unrealistic. It doesn't mean there won't be hard times. Of course, in a sinful world, there always will be hard times. But we're victory people. In fact, that's what I'm speaking about tonight, kingdom people, victory people. And uh, we're called, Ephesians 1 and 2 makes very clear that we're already reigning with the Lord in this life. Uh, too often, Christians downgrade themselves, and they don't recognize their high calling. Mm. But even in difficulty and hardship and death, and even martyrdom, the Bible doesn't promise we will not be martyrs. Nonetheless, we're warriors for the king, and he is using us to advance his kingdom. This really resonates, Dan, and in particular answer to your question, when people look around and see, frankly, a lot of chaos, sexual chaos, political chaos, social chaos everywhere, uh, all of this, uh, as we're speaking now and recording over to the Olympics, I noticed it was stated that uh, the first non-binary person will be participating Hmm. for the Americans in the Olympics. That is a person that's neither male or female. Well, there is no such thing. You are either male or female, the Bible says. But this shows the confusion and the chaos, and this is just one aspect of it. Well, in the midst of that, we need to have the confidence in the sovereignty of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the gospel. And that is the message of the kingdom that the Bible presents. Yes. Some people... um may get easily discouraged. You mentioned some things that are very upsetting for folks, particularly those of us who are a little bit older and realize, hey, it didn't used to be this way. (laughs) That's right. And they can get a little bit discouraged, but they may not have the um, theological perspective to know how to deal with that discouragement. So I'm glad to see that you're going around and sharing good teaching uh, with many people. And what if a person wants to find you online, where could they go to learn more? Thank you, Dan. You're always kind enough to ask that. So several ways. Let's go through them quickly. So you can find out about the Center for Cultural Leadership at Christian Culture. That's written solidly as one word, .com, christianculture.com. Or my blog, uh, to which you referred earlier, Doc Sandlin. Again, that's one word, .com, docsandlin.com. These articles you talked about are my uh, substack. They can just uh, sort of Google my name, Sandlin, and it's called Culture Change, the newsletter, and you can just sign up for free and get those. And then you can just put my name into YouTube, get my YouTube channel, and also audio. You can get it iTunes. You can subscribe on uh, iTunes. And um, so those are some main ways you can get in contact with me and get all sorts of books. Oh, I forgot uh, my Amazon author's page. Just put my name in, P. Andrew Sandlin on Amazon, and you'll find about, I don't know, 25 or 30 books there, some hard copy and some uh, digital and uh, you can learn more. So Mm. that's the way to do it. Yeah, wonderful. Today we're talking with Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership in Coulterville, California. Um, 
I notice on this page also, you mentioned your writings, is a little book. It's called Reformationally Correct. Uh, what's that book about? Yeah, good. That was, I believe, written on the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, uh, 2017. Mm-hmm. It's a collection of articles or essays dealing with the Reformation and how we should apply those today. Ah. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are correctly identified with the Protestant Reformation. That, I believe, is the closest to the biblical teaching. That's why I'm a, I'm a Protestant. Uh, but they somehow think just by reiterating the confessions, um, the 16th and 17th century confessions, and relitigating those battles of that time, that'll suffice for today. Well, it won't. No. Uh, let's take, for example, the principal issue, uh, one of the, well, perhaps the principal social issue today, which is so-called same-sex marriage and related homosexuality and so-called gender fluidity and and the trans and all of that. Well, of course, the reformers didn't have to deal with that. For that matter, neither did the Roman Catholics. So we have to be able to apply the faith in new circumstances, and that's what that book is about. Oh, okay. Yeah, good. So if somebody looks this article up, they'll see the book there. They can click on a link. and They can click on it and get that book or, or any others, yes. A lot of your books you publish as e-books, I believe. Yes, uh, particularly a lot of younger people. I myself read hard copy, and a lot of I would urge all your listeners also. But uh, we do read ebooks too. So I often will produce shorter ebooks, the longer hard copy, or a book, both hard copy and ebook. So some are one, some are the other, and some are both. Right. Now uh, let's go back to Jesus and to Paul. And are there other things that we see happening in each of their? writings and their lives that look so different from each other? Does anything else come to mind, and yet it's not a different gospel? It's identical. Anything else come to mind? Yes, good point. Um, One is obvious, and I've written on this too. Sometimes people will refer to the fact that we need to content ourselves with simply suffering in this life, because Jesus, of course, in the days of his flesh— uh, before the resurrection, did live a life of suffering. He, mm. uh, Isaiah said he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, and they will say, since Jesus is to be our example, that therefore we are to live our lives today just as Jesus did before the resurrection. We can't expect victory. Because, of course, Jesus did not expect victory at that time in his life. However, when we read Paul, it does seem a little different. Yes, he stressed Christ's death, but also his resurrection and his ascension. And his present reign. I mean, that's clear, especially in First Corinthians 15 and Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1, and for that matter, the writer of Hebrews. I think what people don't often understand is that uh, the Son of God is one person, but he has had three phases of existence, if you think about it. I'm not too far out in the weeds here, <laughs> but before he came to earth, of course, before he came to earth, he was in his pre-incarnate existence as the Son of God. And then, of course, he came to earth in his existence as a man and fully God, fully God, fully man. And that was the time mostly of great suffering, particularly suffering on the cross so that we could be saved, substituting on the cross. But, and this is vital, Dan, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he was transformed. He didn't become less God, of course, or more God. But in his being, he was transformed. That's why he could do things in his and can do things now in his resurrection body that he even couldn't, or at least wouldn't do, beforehand. 
And that's why, of course, John, when he sees him, you know, when John was exiled in Patmos, and we read about it in Revelation 1, when he saw the risen Lord, he looked quite a bit different than the Lord that the disciples saw mm-hmm. marching around ancient Israel. It wasn't that it's a different person. It's the same person, but he's in a different mode of existence. He's in his great resurrection glory. The point I want to make is that, of course, it is the same person, but Jesus Christ himself has been transformed. He is now the ruling and reigning king. I think Christians today don't understand that our main paradigm is not the, Jesus, not the pre-resurrection Jesus, but the crucified and resurrected Lord. Amen. And that's what Paul says that in Romans 6. He says, you've died with Christ, but also you have risen with him. So it's not enough to speak of the crucified Lord. We do absolutely need the crucified Lord. Our sins are not paid for apart from the crucified Lord. But there's no power and victory over sin apart from the resurrection. Yes. No victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we need the crucified Lord also as he's been transformed in the resurrection. So I think in that way, Paul and Jesus both dovetail. Yes. Now, going back to that person, and there's many of them, I feel, who is discouraged today. Um, They see things kind of breaking apart in our society. Why are they breaking apart in our society? Any comments on that? Yeah. Well, of course, everybody knows the general answer is sin, but you really want something a little more specific. I do think one of the main things is that we have overturned what I'd like to call uh, the creational norms. Mm. Uh, you really see this in the sexual revolution. I don't know of any one particular thing that has contributed more to what we see today than, than that. Now there are others, the European enlightenment that man's mind, of course, is mm-hmm. autonomous, but the autonomy we see today is almost everywhere understood to be sexual autonomy. Well, I, I, I like to refer to, these creational norms as the OS, most people know that means operating system. Mm-hmm. I'm using a metaphor, of course. So God, crea- so God creates the great computer, if I may say so, <laughs> his cosmos. And he gives us the OS, the operating system. Well, here's the deal. You can type on a computer all you want, but if you violate the operating system, it's not going to work. Mm. Things are going to break. Well, the problem is you have people today in their autonomy that try to break the operating system. In fact, I press, I press a little more and I say, it's as though Satan is introducing a virus yes. into the operating system. And the gospel is the antiviral program. <laughs> the gospel is the program to get rid of all this, to restore God's operating system. So I, I don't think people understand. Let's take sexual ethics and the biblical teaching that sex is a beautiful thing, sexual intercourse, but is, of course, reserved for marriage. That's, of course, God's ideal way. That's the only way. Now, you can break that, but you're going to suffer the consequences. Now, that is a law of the universe. Now, most people understand that the law of gravity is a law of the universe. And if somebody says, I don't really believe in the law of gravity, and I'm going to disprove it, so they climb to the top of the Empire State Building there in New York City, not all that far from you, and jump off, they're not going to prove the law of gravity. They're going to prove the law of gravity, to their own fatal detriment. Well, the same thing in principle is true of violating God's sexual creational norms. Just as gravity is a creational norm, a scientific creational norm, so the the, uh, sexual worldview, biblical sexuality, is a part of the creational norm, ethical creational norm. That, I think, this idea of sexual autonomy, this, by the way, I think will bring 
persecution, and did in the ancient world, by the way. Christians lived pure lives, and of course, ancient pagans did not like that. No. Well, modern pagans do not like that either. They don't. They they want to be able to do with their bodies what they want, and God says, "No, you can't do that." I've established the laws of the universe. So, I, of course, there are other examples in answer to what you said, Dan. But I think that is probably the central problem. Mm. Yeah, very helpful. Today we're talking with Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, and we've got maybe, um, I don't know, three minutes left, Andrew. For that person out there today who um, just stumbled across the broadcast, and maybe he or she is not too familiar with Christian content, um, the very fundamentals of the faith, can you share those with, with this listener now? Yes, uh, it's a great question, great great way to end. Uh, the Bible, the great fundamentals of the faith are that God created the sovereign, gracious, loving, just God created everything, everything in the universe, and all very good, but Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned, and they broke God's law, and that brought his judgment down on all of humanity. But he sent his son to die on the cross to substitute for us so that we wouldn't have to suffer eternal judgment, and he rose again the third day in great victory. He will one day return. He's given the gospel, the good news, that if we trust in Christ, we will be saved. And all of this we can know, and this is a vital fact, because we have a book. That book is the Bible, his scripturated word. Though it is written physically by men, the Holy Spirit used their minds and hearts and personality such that the product, as we read it, is the very inspired word of God, the words of God. That book is truth. We can read it. And though it doesn't address every single possible issue we would like, it addresses every issue in principle, at least, and it tells us how to guide and live our lives. And that if we live our lives in utter dependence on the sovereign triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and obey His Word, being filled with the Spirit, we will live as victory people. Amen. Amen. Praise God for that. Um, Oh, and before I forget, too, um, in a what, another week and a couple of days, we have uh, Valentine's Day coming up. Uh, you walk through the stores, and you see all these candies out, and the colors pink and red and all of that. Uh, any advice in the next minute remaining for, let's say, the men of the home, of how they can be better husbands to their wives? That's a beautiful question. Well, I've been married by God's grace. We'll have been married if God keeps us going for 40 years this August. And uh, despite difficulties and sins, we're all sinful people. By the power of the Spirit, God keeps us going. And one thing I would say to men is be willing to lead and sacrifice for your wife and cherish. That's the biblical language in English. Cherish your wife. Let her know that you love her. And apart from Christ himself and God, she's the center of your life. Your work is not the center of your life. Your wife is the center of your life, again, apart from God. And that demonstrates that to her, and it's remarkable how long your marriage will last. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you very much. Our guest today is Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin. I've never met you, Andrew, but I consider you a, a longtime friend, and I don't know you that well, but we've I've followed you for a long time. And Andrew is the founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership in Coulterville, California. And, uh, Andrew, one more website uh, that pops to your mind as, as the main entry on how to get um, more of your materials, please. 
Yes, DocSandlin.com. Just DocSandlin.com is probably the best place to get a number of the links to it. Okay, sounds good. P. Andrew Sandlin, my brother in the Lord, I hope that your conference goes well, and thank you so much for joining us today. God bless you, Dan. Appreciate your friendship. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 